Revelation 22, 18, and 19. Last week, we looked at those two verses together. This week, we're going to zoom in. We're going to look at verse 18 today, and we're going to look at verse 19 next week. This is the last warning in the Bible. I'm sorry to be repetitive here. This is the last warning in the Bible. Do not mess with God's Word. This isn't the first time this warning appears in the Scriptures. It's at the beginning, the middle, and the end. And there's two ways that we mess with God's Word. We either add to it, verse 18, add something to it and give it the same authority that God's Word has when it's not in God's Word, or we diminish from it, subtract from it, take something away from it. So when you add to God's Word or you take away from it, not just the Word in general, but the words themselves then you're guilty of a great crime against God. And Jesus himself warns us here at the end of the Bible. The last warning of the Bible. It's twofold. So today we're going to look at verse 18. Next week, verse 19. These are serious verses that are rarely, if ever, preached from. And I don't understand why. They're red letters. Jesus says, for I testify. Who is the I here? Look back at verse 16. I, Jesus have sent mine angel. I, Jesus, testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Now the same Holy Spirit that inspired John to write these words that conclude the end of Revelation is the same Holy Spirit that also authored the rest of the books using men as His instrument. It's the same Holy Spirit that sovereignly Uh, govern the gathering together of the books of the Bible into the canon we have today. The same Holy Spirit that oversaw the translation and the inspiration and the preservation of Scripture so that we can read it today in a language we understand. That same Holy Spirit who put this warning at the end of Revelation puts it at the end of the Bible. And so... If you believe in the doctrine of inspiration and preservation as taught in the Scriptures, you have to take this warning as being bigger than the book of Revelation. It's a warning at the end of Revelation put at the end of the Bible. I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. This book is Revelation and by default the Bible. If any man, any man, shall add... Unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. A warning. Remember last week we talked about how warning is a great act of mercy. God does not dispense judgment without warning. God wouldn't add these plagues unto those that added to his word unless he'd warned them about it. And the fact is, God does warn us. Do not add... To his words. He doesn't need you to add to what he has to say. He doesn't need you to to offer your opinion or your commentary. And he doesn't want you to do it. When we take something and we add to what God has said. Putting it on the same pedestal of authority as God's word, the Bible. Then we are adding to God's word. If we... Teach or live as if church attendance is necessary for salvation, 
then we have put church attendance on the same pedestal of authority as the Scriptures which claim that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. We've added to God's Word. We can add to it with our mouths. We can add to it like the Bible translators with their pens. And we can add to it with our lifestyle if we claim to follow. We better be careful. Because God says that to those who add to His Word, He will add to the plagues that are written in this book. The plagues written in Revelation are bad enough. But this book by default also includes the Bible. whole lot of plagues in the Bible. We're being warned here. And we should take it seriously. This same warning here at the end of the Bible is also in the very beginning of the Bible. And it's smack dab in the middle of the Bible. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now remember, Deuteronomy is the, is, is the law of Moses, the Torah. And when you look at the Bible, the Bible can be divided into the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, the Ketuvim, the writings or the Psalms. Jesus is threefold canon of the Old Testament. Then we have the Gospels and the book of Acts. And then we have the epistles. Fivefold, five divisions of the Bible. We have this warning in the very first division of the Bible, the Torah, the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you. God's speaking to Israel through Moses. You shall not add unto the word which I command you. Same warning. Turn to Proverbs 30. Now this is very interesting because this is in the third of the five major divisions of the scriptures. That means it's in the middle. That means there's two divisions on the left side, two divisions on the right side. Proverbs is part of the Psalms. You have the law, the prophet, the Psalms, the Gospels, and Acts goes with the Gospels and the Epistles. Right here in the middle, the middle finger. I won't stick the middle finger up by itself, but right here is the wisdom literature, the poetic books, the Psalms, and right here in the middle of the Bible, Proverbs 30. We have a stark warning. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God, not the word of God in general, every word of God, that means the words themselves, is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. Add thou not unto His words, lest He reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. There's a warning. Smack dab in the middle of the Bible. Not just in the middle uh, division, not just in the third major division of the Bible, of third of five in the middle, but literally in the middle. If I'm to take Genesis 1-1 to Revelation, I'm looking at Proverbs 35 and 6 right there. That's the middle of the Bible, guys. Smack dab in the middle. God says don't add to His words. And he promises you that if you do, you will be shown a liar. Serious warning. And then, lo and behold, we have the exact same warning. A little stronger. The strongest of the threes here at the end. So we can't say we haven't been warned. 
If you add to God's word, God's going to add the plagues that are written into this book. These are serious things. And guys, this is exactly what Eve did in the Garden of of Eden. The first sin against God, the first stupid thing that man ever did was not taking a bite out of that apple, believe it or not. Taking a bite, I don't, we don't even know if it was an apple. We just say that. I, I, I'll stand correct. The Bible doesn't say what kind of a fruit it was. So it's amazing how we just automatically associate things from man-made tradition that the Bible doesn't say. So the first stupid thing men did was not eating of that fruit. The first stupid thing a human did was in Genesis 3.3. The serpent came subtly and came to Eve and said, uh, yeah, God said this, said not to eat of every tree, (coughs) but that's not what he really meant. Better translation would read blah, 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 blah. And here's how the woman responded to the serpent, Genesis 3, 2, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it. That's what God said. And then here's where she goes wrong. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Guess what, guys? God never told them they couldn't touch it. Never said that. She adds to God's word. And when she does that, she sets herself up to be exactly what Paul the Apostle said she was, deceived. It's a serious thing to add to God's Word. Who's guilty of this? Are we guilty of this? God forbid. Who's guilty of adding to God's Word? False teachers and false religions are guilty of adding to God's Word. When you fashion and you create a Jesus that is something other than what has been revealed in the Scriptures, you have added to God's Word. And your guilty is charged. Mormonism is guilty. Jehovah's Witness doctrine is guilty. The cults are guilty. They have fashioned a Jesus who is other than what God's Word reveals. Other than God become flesh. Other than the Messiah, whose death, burial, and resurrection is all sufficient for reconciling us to God, they have added to God's Word. When you attribute sayings to Jesus that are not found in the Scriptures, you are adding to God's Word. Be careful. Some folks in here, and I don't mean to pick on you, but some folks in here really enjoy this series that is very popular amongst Christians called The Chosen. I haven't, I've watched one episode, I think, but be very careful. In the new season, the Jesus character adds to God's Word. He makes the statement, I am the law. You know where that comes from? It comes from the book of Nephi in the book of Mormon. Quote in the book of Mormon. Do your research. Jesus Christ never said, I am the law. He said, I am the fulfillment of the law. I came to fulfill it. We've got to be careful, guys. That's adding to God's word. I'm not telling you what you should and shouldn't watch. I'm not saying that at all. You've got to 
answer to the Holy Spirit and, 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 and uh, listen to your conscience there. But be careful. Adding to God's word happens all around us. And we oftentimes don't have eyes to see it. I can be, I'm guilty of that too. We have to be careful. When we add something to Jesus that's not revealed to us in the scriptures, whether it's a saying, a teaching, or a character trait, we are adding to God's word. Be careful. Who else is guilty? Rabbinic Judaism is guilty of adding to God's word. Now, I'm not talking about biblical Judaism. I'm not talking about the Old Testament foundation of our faith. I'm not talking about the law, the prophets and the writings and the faithful saints and prophets of old who give us God's word. I'm not talking about God's promises to the Jewish people that will be fulfilled, but I'm talking about rabbinic Judaism. What is rabbinic Judaism? It's the same man-made religion that Jesus confronted in the first century in Jerusalem. The rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Rabbinic Judaism has added to God's Word. And it's added to God's Word with their Targums and their Talmuds going way back before Christ was born. Jesus speaks about this. Matthew 15 verse 9 Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, speaking of the religious leaders, speaking of rabbinic Judaism says in Matthew 15 verse 9, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. This same thing is repeated in Mark chapter 7 verse 7. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. When you take and teach a man-made commandment as if it's doctrine or as if it's God's, then you're adding to God's Word. And the rabbis were notorious with this. That's what the Talmud is. They claim it's oral tradition. It's commentary on the Scriptures. And rabbinic Judaism looks to the Talmud as authoritative, not to the Bible. And so there's all these rules and regulations that God never gave. It's Eve on steroids. It's adding to God's Word. And Christian people who are enamored with the Jewish foundation of our faith, and I think it is something that should give us pause. It's something that should give us all in a Romans 11 type of fashion. But those out there who are so enamored with uh, the Jewish foundation of our faith need to make sure that what enamors them is the Word of God and not the teachings of the rabbis. And when you start observing and doing stuff as a Gentile that the rabbis have added to God's Word, thinking it makes you righteous or gives you an inside track, then you're, you're def- by default guilty here of adding to God's Word. Be careful. One of the a prime example of how the rabbis and Jewish tradition have added to God's word can be found in Exodus chapter 23 verse 19. Now this same commandment is repeated three times in the law. You have it twice in Exodus with regard to sacrifices brought to the temple or to the sanctuary, God's sanctuary. And then you have it a third time in Deuteronomy with regard 
to whether, you know, what they should or shouldn't eat. You know, and, and, and God didn't want his people eating things that were animals that had died of themselves. In other words, don't cook up and eat a corpse or roadkill. It says here in this passage, Exodus 23, 19, the first of the first fruits of thy land shalt thou bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Bring your first fruits. Give them to God. First fruits of your crops, of your flocks. And then there's an interesting little commandment here at the end. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. In other words, don't cook up a baby goat, seasoning it in the milk of its mother. We, we, that's foreign to us. It's not something we do and we might ask ourselves, what exactly does God mean? Well, the rabbis interpret this to mean that you are never to mix meat and dairy. You can eat meat. You can have dairy. But they're never to be mixed. In other words, they say, do not eat cheese on a burger. So if you go to McDonald's in a kosher area like in Buenos Aires in Argentina in the the Jewish neighborhood you go to the McDonald's there or you go to the McDonald's in Israel you will not have cheese on your Big Mac unless you ask for it because you're not supposed to see the kid in his mother's milk with religious Jews you actually with some of these will have two separate kitchens in their homes one kitchen for the preparation of meat and everything else and then a totally separate kitchen for the preparation of dairy. Just to make sure, God forbid, that not even a utensil that has touched meat would ever touch dairy. Because God forbid, meat and dairy would ever even touch themselves in our homes. That is the product of adding to God's Word. God's Word never says you can't have cheese on your burger. God never says you can't drink milk when you eat a steak. It's funny because when Abraham sees the three angels coming to his tent, one of those was God himself. The other two angels would go down to Sodom and destroy it. Abraham prepared for them food. And that food was meat and dairy together. And offered it to those angels. And yet the rabbis say, oh boy, you better not put cheese on your burger. That is adding to God's word. Well, what does this commandment even mean? Why would, you not, why would God not want His people in Israel, a nation He had set apart to teach the other nations of the world, why would He not want them cooking or seething a kid in its mother's milk? I think the answer is quite obvious. It's the same thing we're warned against in the New Testament. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from even the appearance of evil. God told them, don't take something that is meant to be for nourishment and growth Milk that comes from a mother that's meant to be for nourishment and growth of her young and then cook the young in it? Take what is meant for nourishments and growth and use it to season something? Don't do it. 
How often do we take something that's meant for good in our culture and we use it for evil? God hates that. That's why Israel was not meant or, or was told not to boil or season a kid in the very thing that was designed for that baby goat's nourishment and growth. Take a gift from its mother and use it as a means to cook it. Don't do it. That seems reasonable to me. But it has nothing to do with putting cheese on a burger. But the rabbis do that. They take God's commandments and they build a fence around it and they extend the fence out way around the commandment and then add all of these other things like the washing of pots and cups and all of this stuff Jesus warned against and teach them as the commandments of God. And then people are more concerned with what's been added to God's Word and keeping that than they are with the commandment itself. It's a dangerous thing. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pick on rabbinic rabbinic Judaism. The Catholic Church is guilty of the same thing. Guilty as charged. How many papal decrees over the years? How many traditions have been placed on the same level of authority as Scripture? Things not written in the Word of God. Things that have been added. In fact, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that tradition and the Bible are of equal authority. That's adding to God's Word. And in some ways, that's even worse than what rabbinic Judaism has done. The Apocrypha, prayers for the dead, priestly confession, prayers to Mary, all of these things come from tradition that has been put in a place of equal authority with Scripture. These are all the fruits of adding to God's Word, and it's dangerous and damnable. And you can rest assured that the day will come. I think we see it right there in Revelation 17 when every one of the plagues talked about is going to be poured out by God on the institution of the Catholic Church. It's coming. And all man-made religion. You know, we're not here to pick on rabbis. We're not here to pick on the Catholics. American churchianity is very guilty of failing to heed this warning. American churchianity... Maybe we're guilty. Maybe we need to repent. Equating American nationalism and politics with godliness and being a Christian is adding to God's Word. In some ways, and I don't want to be maligned for saying this, I wouldn't have thought this way years ago. But today I wonder... If pledging allegiance to the United States flag at the expense of 100% committed allegiance to God and His Word is not adding to God's Word. As if pledging allegiance to something that represents evil in many ways today is acting as if the nation and loyalty to it is as important as loyalty to God's Word. Things we all think about. Times... And the changing of times force us to think about these things. God is not an American. God is not a Republican. When we associate 
I think as preachers, we've got, to, we've got to preach about the evils of politics. That's what preachers have done going back to the prophets of old, the Old Testament. We shouldn't be afraid to confront the politicians and politics and speak of these things as visual proof of evil in our society. When you avoid those things, when you avoid making application of the Scriptures to what's happening right in front of your face in your own nation, then you're a coward. But substituting politics or acting as if how somebody votes is as important as how they live. How you vote reflects how you live, but to act as if casting a vote on a ballot is as important as repenting and trusting in Christ is is adding to God's word is foolishness. In our society... We have taken cowardice and we have equated it with meekness and humility. That's adding to God's Word. In our society, we've taken mask, vaccine, social distancing, fear, and we have equated it with virtue. That's adding to God's Word. All the virtue signaling. When we think more about what would Jesus do, remember that old fad we all sat through? Some of us wore the bracelets, WWJD. When we elevate that instead of WDJS, what did Jesus say? We are adding to God's Word. When we redefine what God defines as a society, as churches and as individuals and the way we conduct ourselves, we are guilty and we deserve the plagues written in this book. When we take the word marriage and the institution that God designed between one man and one woman and we redefine it to include all sorts of perversion, sodomy, homosex, child trafficking, trannyism and all whatever you want to call it, then we have added to God's word He will reprove us. We will be founded liar, found as liars, and he will add unto us the plagues written in this book. This society, wicked as hell, to take an institution that God defines and God ordains, and then to redefine it. That's adding to God's word. When we take man, God's creation, male and female, and we redefine these things so that a male can be a female and a female a male then we deserve the plagues written in this book. For we have failed to heed God's warning or to take it seriously. We have added to His words. When we take words and exhortations in the Scriptures that are directed toward the relationships between believers within the body of Christ, we take those things to love one another Within the body of Christ, when we take those exhortations, diminishing our relationships in the body of Christ and foisting them upon the enemies of God and the evildoers and workers of iniquity, then we have added to God's Word. When we love the enemies of God more than we love those within the body of Christ, when we seek to appease the enemies of God and wicked men more than we seek to prefer and be reconciled with our brothers in Christ, we are guilty of adding to God's Word and we deserve the plagues written therein. 
Very simple. If we put anything else on the table of final authority with the scriptures, we are guilty of adding to God's word. And that, mean, that includes the U.S. Constitution. That includes the Bill of Rights. It includes the Pledge of Allegiance. When we put these things, if this is the pulpit of authority, and I've got my Bible, then I better, eat, I better take my notes off of that pulpit. They don't belong there. And neither does the U.S. Constitution or the Bill of Rights. This is the authority. Amen. So guys, we can appeal to the Constitution. We can be thankful for those things because they've protected our liberties for a long time. But we need to understand that the right and the liberty to worship God according to our conscience, the right and the liberty to speak, the right to assemble as we have here today, the right and the liberty to protect ourselves and our families don't come from the Constitution. Those are inalienable rights from God. Duties that we are expected as those who fear God to carry out. And we ought to carry out those duties with or without a Constitution. And there are ina- when, when we're talking about inalienable rights from God, a prosecutor or a judge or a court or a fake president doesn't even have the authority to order you what to do one way or another. Now, there may be consequences that come with refusing to bow to these dictates, but so be it. I'd rather be face the consequences of men than the consequences of God for something very serious, especially when it comes to what we've been entrusted as men to do to sharpen each other and to lead about a wife and to lead about children. Adding to God's word is the way of Cain. Cain learned it from his mother. God required a blood sacrifice. But Cain thought, I'm going to come to God on my own terms. I'm a farmer, a tiller of the ground. I'm going to bring my own fruit to God. He added to God's word. And he's the father, therefore, of all man-made religion. Woe, beware the way of Cain. So these, these entities are guilty. Are we guilty? Are we guilty in general of adding to God's word by putting man-made tradition on the same plane of authority? There are... You can add to God's word by your actions, claiming to follow God's word, and then you add to it by the way you live, both your traditions, false religions. But... We also can add to God's word. The warning is not just to adding to God's word. It's against adding to God's words. The words themselves. And I don't think we can reflect upon this warning properly without considering how this has been done in the marketing of Bibles in recent years, in recent decades. In, in the Bible translations, it's been done time and time again. Now, these translations more often than not take away from God's Word, and we'll talk more about that later. But there's some adding to God's Word too. And the adding to God's Word that is found in false teachings and false religions and churchianity is reflected in the Bibles that men produce for profit. We've got all these Bible translations nowadays. You can get the African-American study Bible. 
You can get the Patriot Study Bible that actually has a flag on the front of it. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something wrong with a Bible that has an American flag as a cover. Something wrong with that. What would that communicate to an individual in the third world who's never heard of the gospel and is being told that Jesus died for his, our sins and God gave us his word, what would it communicate to him if I handed him a Bible with an American flag on the front of it? That flag has no business on the front of God's Bible. Neither does a pagan symbol that's imprinted on the front or the inside cover of a New King James Bible. It has no, has no place there. That's dangerously close to violating the second commandment, in my opinion. But we have to watch these Bible translations. All of these translations marketed, remarketed. And let's just assume the motivation behind men who endeavored in these labors at the expense of sharing the gospel, at the expense of loving their brethren, at the expense of planting churches and raising up godly families. Let's assume their motive was pure. Let's assume that the motive of every board that put out another Bible translation in the last hundred years was pure. Well, if we make the Bible easier to understand in a more updated language, then more people will read the Bible, more people will get saved, and the country will turn back to God. Let's assume that was the motive. Now, when money's involved, that's never the motive. Money was involved. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume it was the motive going all the way back to the 1904. I think it was 04. The first updated Bible in America, the American Standard Version. Let's just assume the motive was pure. Let's compare society in 1904 where you had one English Bible, one standard Bible, this good old King James 2023, Bibles everywhere. Have more people come to know the Lord? Has the nation turned back from God or has it turned away from God? It's turned away greatly. We live in a nation, what if Christians, what if wicked people, what if secular people living in 1904 America could look forward and see that in 2023 America, Marriage is defined as between a man and a woman, a man and a man, a woman and a woman, a woman and a donkey. What do you think they'd think? They had one English Bible prior to 1904. Now we've got a plethora. What would they think? What would Christians think? The, if that was the motive, then it has failed terribly. We have a, a whole generation of young people who have no knowledge of anything in the Scriptures. No knowledge of God. It confounded me some years ago when I went to Finland. I spent some time there with a brother I went to seminary with. He was Finnish. And we traveled around and did evangelism. We took Bibles that had been translated into the Karelian language for the first time into northern Russia and distributed them. We were at the far ends of the earth. But we spent some time on the streets of downtown Helsinki, the capital of Finland. Finland's a nice country. It's one of the cleanest countries I've ever been to, even more so than the United States. Great coffee. And <clears throat> they drink it strong. Um, but talking to young people who at the time, this has been a while ago, who at the time were teenagers or young adults that literally knew nothing about God. They knew nothing. 
And I was amazed at that. And yet in 2023, that's where we are here in America. Know nothing about God. So these Bible versions have failed. Putting out a plethora of Bibles where men profit and make the Bible easier to understand has not accomplished what folks claim it's meant to do. That tells you it's a failure and we need to watch out. Adding to God's Word is reflected in just our, I won't go into other languages, but just in modern English Bibles that are printed and sold, copyrighted. It's reflected here. Now, there's a lot of different English Bibles. I want to look at one today that is just a popular Bible amongst some good brothers, some good preachers. And I can't help but think that some of this is ignorance. I don't believe it's willful ignorance. But I want to take just for an example what's called the ESV, the English Standard Version. It's a darling of many preachers these days. And a lot of these preachers are very solid preachers. But the ESV, all it is, my friends, is a remarketed New American Standard Bible, which was a remarketed American Standard Version going back to 1904. That's all it is. And guys, when you're making something and you want to copyright it and you want to preserve it and you want to make money off of it, what do you do when its markability, its marketability begins to fade? You remarket it. Anybody in business understands how that works. Matthew understands how that works in the sock business. You just remarket it. And that's what a lot of these Bibles are. The ESV is a remarketed New American Standard, which is a remarketed American Standard. Why are they remarketed? Well, if they were sufficient, they would never need to be remarketed. But you've got to appeal to the masses and sell these Bibles. And those that are, have the copyright make a little money off of it. People profit off of modern Bibles. They do. The love of money is indeed, in these last days, the root of all evil. Follow the money. And there's some very interesting places in the ESV where God's Word is added to. Even right here in Revelation. Turn to Luke 2.33. And this is just a warning to you that perhaps some of these Bibles you study from have added to God's Word and you need to have eyes for it. I'd say get you, get you that old 66 caliber black back double-edged broadsword called a King James Bible that God blessed for 400 years. The Bible of the revivals. The Bible of the pinnacle of America's witness to the world. Get you that old King's English. That's what I carry. Luke 2.33 My Bible says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Jesus. They marveled at the things that were spoken. Joseph and his mother marveled. The NIV says, and his father and his mother marveled at the things that were said of him. Guys, that is not insignificant. Joseph was not Jesus' father. God was. And that's why my Bible says Joseph and his mother. But when you change Joseph to his father, are you not adding to God's word? Are you not adding an element to Jesus' relationship with Joseph that's not there? Joseph, at best, was his stepfather, at best. 
But he was not his father. God was his father. I don't think that's insignificant. Turn to Romans 10, 17. A lot of us know this passage. We've memorized it as children. Romans 10, 17. You guys know what that is? So faith then, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible tells me that faith comes by God's word. God's word is the instrument of faith. It's God's word that produces faith. It's God's word that opens eyes. It's God's word that draws us to Him. The washing of regeneration, the pure, unadulterated word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God is the instrument whereby cometh faith. But my friends... The ESV says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's adding to God's word. You're taking what is the instrument of faith and you are turning it into a medium of faith. In other words, you're taking what God says is the instrument that brings about faith and therefore the reason why we preach God's word because we know it's powerful and it works. And then we make it simply a medium, a channel through which faith comes. What do we do when we change Word of God to Word of Christ? What do we do by default? We take the authority of this whole book and we limit it to the red letters. As if the red letters, the Gospels, are more important than the rest of the Bible. Isn't that what a lot of churchianity has done? Churchianity that camps out in the Sermon on the Mount but never would preach from Revelation or never would preach from Ephesians chapter 1 or never would preach from the Old Testament? Well, why are we surprised? We're reading Bibles that speak as if the Word of Christ, most people associate that with what Jesus says in the Gospels, is somehow or replaces the Word of God which is more underreaching. Now, we understand that Christ is God And that the Word of Christ is the Word of God. But these changes are not insignificant. Especially when red letter churchianity is typical. By the Word of God is not the same as through the Word of Christ. Through the Word of Christ is adding to by the Word of God. Be careful. Wow, Philippians 2, 6 is a doozy. And you will see this in many modern English Bibles. Philippians 2, 5 and 6, we know very well. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness... I'm sorry, I skipped verse 6. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, what? Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So in other words, we read that Jesus who took on the form of a servant, was in the form of God, and he didn't consider it robbery to to be equal with God. He didn't consider that robbery or blasphemy or anything wrong. It wasn't robbery for Jesus to claim I and my Father are one, or for Jesus to tell His disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's not robbery. That's not taking God's authority and His position and robbing it. Because Jesus was God. He is God. 
He didn't think that was robbery. In other words, it was very important that Jesus equated himself with God, even though he, he took on the form of a servant. It was very important because it was true. But the modern Bibles do exactly what the ESV does here and change God's word to say the opposite. It says in the ESV that Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Uh, what? In other words, my King James says that equating himself with God was important. It wasn't robbery. But the ESV says it wasn't something that was very important to Jesus. It wasn't even something to be grasped. Now, that's adding to God's Word. That's exchanging. When you exchange God's Word, you add to it. That's serious, in my opinion. But then you look at verse 7. Jesus didn't consider robbery to be equal with God, but He made Himself of no reputation. When we see that word but, it means there's a contrast. Jesus thought it important to equate Himself with God because He was God, but He still took on the form of a servant and made Himself of no reputation. That makes sense. One thing but another. But what makes the ESV reading even more ridiculous is their verse 7, like modern Bibles, also says but. In other words, Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but He made Himself of no reputation. What do you mean? Equality with God is not important, but He made Himself of no reputation? I would think if you don't equate God's... Equality with God is important, then you would and make yourself of no reputation. So they change it and mess it up. And then you can see the foolish of it right there in their own work when they don't even change the next word to make it agree with the next verse. Be careful, guys. These things are serious. James 5.16. We see a very messed up adding to God's Word that is reflected in the official teachings of the Catholic Church, reflected in the very doctrine of priestly confession. James says in verse 16 of chapter 5, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. The word there in Greek is peripatoma. It means fault. It means your weakness, your tendency. The standard Greek word for sin, hamartia, can be found in James 1, 15, 16, 17, and 18, in James 5, 15, and James 20, and 5, 20. So the word for sin or sins throughout the New Testament is found in James multiple times. But here in verse 16, the word is not the word for sin. It's the word for faults, your tendencies, your weaknesses. That is what we are to confess to one another. But the ESV said confess your sins one to another. The modern Bible say confess your sins one to another. It's not the word for sin. They change God's word. They add to it. In other words, don't confess your faults and your weaknesses one to another for exhortation and encouragement and strength, but confess your sins to a priest. Confessed your sins 
the details that are between you and God, you were to confess to everybody else. And therefore, ruin your testimony. Therefore, we'll bring reproach on the name of Christ. Now, if you sin against your brother, you need to confess it to him. If you've been brought before the church, you need to confess it. But nowhere does the Bible tell us to confess our sins to someone else. We are to confess them to God. And certainly not a priest. What we can confess to each other, and we see this in our church. We have elders that are transparent. Deacons who are transparent. Who have no problem confessing one to another their faults. I have no problem confessing to you my faults. I have no problem. I can, be, I can be obsessed with things at the expense of other things that are important. I have faults and tendencies that we should confess to each other so that we can help one another and strengthen one another. When you change faults to sins and entire false doctrines are built upon them, you've added to God's Word. These are not innocent changes. The last one I think is important is Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3, I don't mean to run long, but this verse, Hebrews 1 verse 3, shows us that you can add to God's Word by actually subtracting from it. That's possible. You can add through subtraction. You can subtract through adding. So in some senses, these warnings in 18 and 19 are actually warnings against the same thing. Hebrews 1 3 says... Who, talking about Jesus, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Jesus was the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. And upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, when He had by Himself purged our sins... He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had by himself purged our sins. Isn't that a powerful statement? Jesus by himself. Without without our help. Without anybody else's help. Purged our sins. Once and for all. On the cross if we will receive it. The ESV is an example of adding to God's word through subtraction says they take out by himself is is removed. It's not there. And our, the pronoun our has been removed. In other words, when he had purged sin or sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Guys, that's adding to God's word by subtracting it from it. In other words, you take what is very personal and you make it general. So, we then respond to the general by adding something to it to make it personal again. Does that make sense? In other words, what is very personal is made general. Therefore, we feel the need to add things. Well, Jesus paid for our sins, but I better, I better be a good person. I better pray every day. I better read my Bible. Or I better go to church. Or I better... Speak out on social media. I better virtue signal, put my Ukrainian flag on my Facebook page. I better do all these things just in case i got to cover my bases. Why would we need to cover our bases if God's Word said that Jesus by Himself purged our sins? 
And yet men add all of these things to God's Word, superstitions, traditions, to try to earn God's favor, something they cannot earn without Christ. That's a dangerous adding to God's Word by subtracting from it. I, that's, that's what I believe. These are not innocent changes. Revelation. God says don't add to the things written in this book, Revelation. And that includes the whole Bible. Well, the ESV's done that in Revelation. Exchanging God's Word is adding to it. Exchanging God's Word is adding to it. In Revelation 8.13, an angel is exchanged for an eagle. In Revelation 22.19, we'll see next week, the book of life is exchanged for the tree of life. And in Revelation 20, verse 12, God is exchanged for the word throne. It's adding to God's word. I think it's messed up. These things are very dangerous, in my opinion. And they bring, according to this verse, very serious consequences. In this book, verse 18... Of this book, not just revelation, by, by, if we believe in the Holy Spirit that guides and oversees and protects and preserves the Word of God, then it means the Bible too. If you add to the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. It's interesting, that word we translate plagues is actually plague in Greek. And it means wounds. It means a wound. Not necessarily the plague here. Plagues here aren't necessarily references to eternal damnation. Certainly not for general, genuine believers. Genuine believers can mistakenly or even willfully add to God's word. So, and they are being warned here. This is written to the churches. Being warned. But plague doesn't necessarily mean eternal damnation and neither does judgment. It means wounds or stripes. And yes, believers can fall into this error. And yes, God will judge them. And He can send upon them plagues, wounds, or stripes. We see this in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira suffered a plague. When you see people dropping over dead... For no reason like we do today. That's nothing new. That was a plague God brought upon a man and a woman who lied to the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 11. Plagues. Weakness, sickness, and death. In the body of Christ for those who misuse God's table. Genuine believers. The church at Ephesus was warned that God would remove its witness from the earth. Kill it. Destroy it. A plague if they would not return to their first love. That doesn't mean eternal damnation. We talked about that on the, in my message to the church at Ephesus on that, that uh, sermon in this, this study. But wounds are stripes. I don't want wounds or stripes from my Lord. Certainly this for the damned and the unwashed, this warning is to terrible plagues. And we see that throughout the Bible. Do we need to sit here and rehash the seven seal judgments? The seven trumpet judgments? 
the seven vile plagues. Do we want that poured upon our society? Should the wicked want that? Should the believer want that? No. Let's don't add to God's Word. What about the plagues that go beyond the book of Revelation? What about the plagues written in this book? Do we want those? If we add to God's Word, we're inviting them. We always think about the ten plagues that God unleashed upon Egypt. Those are easy to think about. Those are plagues written in this book. God's warning our nation about adding to His words. Do we want those plagues revisited upon us? What about the fiery serpents in the desert? That was a plague from God. What about the fire from God that fell from heaven and incinerated those rebels who challenged Moses and Aaron's authority? What about the earth that swallowed up the complainers, the murmurers, and the rebels who troubled God? That's a plague written in this book. I'll tell you one thing. My desire is that the earth would swallow up Washington, D.C. and free us from this evil tyranny in this country. My desire isn't a January 6th protest. That's not my desire. My desire is that God would raise up a Samson that would go in there and put his hands on the pillars when they're all gathered together, all every last one of them, Democrats, Republicans, lobbyists, every last one of them, and bring it crashing down on that band of Philistines. And that plague is something that happened in God's Word. And every time that wicked bunch in Washington adds to God's Word, they're inviting that plague. So when it does come, they have nobody to blame but themselves. Do we need to talk about the stones that smacked Achan in the head? Joshua 7, that's a plague. What about the Ephraimites and their shibboleths? Judges 12, that's a plague. We see that today when 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 a stupid old man that calls himself a president, mocks God and mocks everything God stands for, opens his big fat mouth and falls into the very trap he laid for his predecessor. Just like the shibboleths in Judges chapter 12. Do we need to talk about those hemorrhoids that popped up on the Philistines when they took the ark? Big old nasty, bleeding, convulsing hemorrhoids. Read about that, 1 Samuel 5. What about Saul, King Saul's madness? It's a plague from God. I would say that when a nation messes with God's Word, adding to it or subtracting from it, a nation that knew God once, then God will mess with that nation's collective mind. And that's what we see today. We see King Saul's insanity today on the American people. What about the disobedient Man of God's lion who tore him to shreds. 1 Kings 13. Simply because he listened to bad advice of another believer and didn't obey God. What about Asa's foot disease? 1 Kings 15. Ahab's arrow. Even the mightiest warrior can be slain with a single arrow. That's what's so foolish about the nincompoop with a badge in Madison County, Montana, said to me, 
You were not in fear for your life because you're a martial artist. You can't be in fear for your life. Now that's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard anybody say. King David said, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. The same King David who slew a bear and a lion and he took a stone and slew the Philistine said he was afraid. Friends, you can't have courage if you don't have fear. What do you mean I can't be afraid because I'm a martial artist? I'd be a fool if I was never afraid. Now we shouldn't dwell on our fears. We shouldn't live by our fears. But by, by God we should take them to, to Him. Stupid. Madness. The mightiest warrior can be slain with a rock. Between the eyes. Why wouldn't somebody who's strong or trained or well-versed in protecting himself ever be afraid? Why not? Especially when his kids are around. Stupidity. Madness. What about Jezebel's hungry dogs? They ate her up. All they found was a skull in the palms of her hands. That's a plague from God. What about mocking children's she-bears? Mocking the prophet for his bald head. Forty-two children. Two she-bears came out of the woods and shredded them. Forty-two kids. That's a plague from God. God told Israel that if they turned away from Him, He would send wild beasts that would rob them of their children. God will add the plagues written in the Bible to those who add to His Word. What about Ahaziah's balcony, 2 Kings 1? We could talk about the lynching of the queen in 2 Kings 11. The one who had ordered so many to their death was lynched herself. Joash, the child king who feared God for a while and then got mad when he was corrected by a prophet. What about his assassins? A plague from God. King Uzziah's leprosy, 2 Chronicles 26, a plague. Written in this book. Sennacherib's, the mighty Assyrian kings, 185,000 dead bodies. A plague written in this book. Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. Caused his hair to grow like feathers. Caused his nails to grow out. Running around like a crazy man in a, in a, in a lawn eating grass. It's a plague for a man that didn't take God's word seriously. What about Belshazzar's soiled underwear? Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, when he saw the, the writing on the wall in the midst of a big party, crapped his pants. Go read it. Soiled his underwear, soiled his britches. That's a plague written in this book. Haman's gallows constructed to hang the Jews. He was hung upon them. Esther chapter 7. A plague written in this book. What about Judas's smackdown? John chapter 18. Judas came with all the boldness in the world into that garden to have Jesus arrested. And Judas himself, when he laid hands on the tetragrammaton, Jehovah God went to the ground. Smacked to the ground. And all those that were with him by an unseen force, the moment he laid his hands on Almighty God in that garden. Plague. 
What about Herod's worms? Acts chapter 12. Herod's sitting there boasting, receiving glory as they praised him and people were kissing up to him. Didn't give God the glory. He was eating of worms. That's a plague in this book. The sons of Sceva, who thought they were big and bad, going around casting out demons. They got a beat down. That old demon spoke up and says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who the heck are you? And the one that the, the one who was possessed by the, that devil beat the snot out of them guys. That's a plague written in this book. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue in Acts chapter 18, got a spanking, got a public spanking when those Jews tried to stir up them folks against the preachers. Then the Gentiles turned on them. I mean, these are plagues written in this book. God says those that add... To his words in this book, he will add unto them the plagues written in this book. Now, I don't want this stuff. God forbid that any of this stuff would come upon me, whether it's a shibboleth or a public spanking. Now, that old Sosthenes that got a public spanking, he became saved. He became a believer because Paul speaks of him. Sosthenes, our beloved brother, later in one of his epistles. So that spanking inured to his benefit. And he's one of the few, Nebuchadnezzar also, where these plagues inured to their benefit, but not always. Do we want these plagues to come upon our nation, upon our society, upon our communities, upon our churches? If we don't, then we better take seriously God's Word. It's a very serious thing to add to His Word and to His words. Preserved in the Scriptures. Be careful, lest, as it's written in Proverbs 30, verse 5, He reprove us. All of these plagues here are reprovals from God that showed men to be liars. Lest He reprove us and we be found a liar. I'll get into this more next week. I won't, I'm going to end here. But instead of adding to God's Word, we need to be like those... In Isaiah 66, who tremble before God's Word. God said that in the presence of those that add and take away from His Word, God will remember the ones that tremble before His Word. And those that mocked Him would actually be ashamed. God's going to elevate those who tremble against His Word. He's going to punish those who add and take away from it. So I hope this has given us a few things to think about. Next week, we're going to look at verse 19, part of this last warning, the second half. Don't add to God's Word. Don't subtract from it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time to open Your Word, to look at a very serious warning, to consider what it means, to consider <coughs> how our nation has been guilty of these things to consider how churchianity has been guilty, and to consider how maybe we are guilty of these things. And we humble ourselves before You. We ask that You would forgive us and help us to tremble before Your Word instead of adding to it or subtracting from it or exchanging it or lightly esteeming it just like Israel did in the desert. So may we soberly think about these things. Thank You, God, for what Your Word says. That Jesus Christ by Himself purged our sins. Our sins. That's mine, Lord. The wretch the old hymn talks about. 
purged our sins and set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And that from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Lord Jesus, come and redeem us from this present evil world. May we cling to these Bibles. The very thing that old Obama used to mock and laugh at. May we do it. May we cling to this word until you come. In Jesus' name, bless the food we're about to eat. Bless our fellowship one with another, Lord. Thank you that we can enjoy it here with freedom and liberty today. And may we enjoy it without freedom and liberty and be willing to take the consequences that come from that. In Jesus' name, amen.